we have examined ourselves before you this morning, and as we do, we, we find that we are wanting. We are in need of your grace, of your mercy, of your patience, of your love. And yet we find also when we look into your eyes that we see not judgment and condemnation, but we see mercy and grace. And we thank you for that, Jesus. And as we leave this moment of communion, we head into this next week, may others see in our eyes the same love, grace, and mercy that you have shown to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love a great story where an underdog overcomes all the obstacles to win. I don't know if you enjoy those kinds of stories or not, but those are the ones that have always captured my attention. Winning against the long odds, against all odds, and coming through. I especially like stories where the circumstance involves a moment of fear and anxiety and a, a, a sense that there's just no way we can get through this, and yet somehow the heroine or the, or the hero is able to overcome their fear, overcome the challenge they're facing to find victory. A David and Goliath kind of moment. I enjoy those kinds of stories because they remind me that even though life is difficult and we do face lots of hard times, God is able to get us through those. And as I was thinking about that story, I was reminded of a book I was given uh, by my father-in-law before he passed. It's a book called When God Builds a Church. And it's a fascinating story about a, a church that overcomes all kinds of challenges to be the church that God wants them to be. The introduction, though, tells the story of a moment, a pivotal moment in that church's history where the pastor has to face some fears and make some big decisions in order to see what God's going to do. I want to read to you from the introduction to that story. It says this. The author writes, I'll never forget the first time I met Butch Dabney. It was an afternoon conference in Cincinnati, Ohio, and during the conference, at a break, he walked up to me. The year was 1965 when I first heard those words. Hi, I'm Butch Dabney, he said. I'm the chairman of the pulpit committee of a brand new church. And I'd like to talk to you about our church. Do you have a moment? Now the author writes, Butch, who was then in his early 40s, was personable and confident, relaxed and quick-witted. And he had a contagious enthusiasm for the Lord and the new church that he had helped to start. This is going to be such a special church, Butch assured me. We just started a few years ago with 50 members, and among those members were several experienced and devoted leaders who really want to see a church that honors Christ and grows. And although we currently are meeting in the basement of a house, we've grown to be over 125 people. And we're in the process of building a new church building that'll seat 400. Butch spoke with conviction and, and enthusiasm as he continued. He wrote, 
We believe that what we do for the Lord should be our very best. We also believe we have the potential to be a powerful church. We've been praying for the right minister, and that's where you come in. Well, the author says the situation sounded ideal, but he writes, I knew I had to say, your church sounds wonderful, I'm sure it's going to do great things, but I know it cannot be the Lord's will for me right now. The author continued, in June, I became the first full-time minister of a congregation over in Ohio. I committed to stay for at least a year. So, Butch, you see, it cannot be God's will for me to break that promise. Butch and I parted company, and I didn't think that I would ever see him again. Several months later, I received a long-distance phone call. The voice was no longer familiar until he spoke these words. Hi, I'm Butch Dabney. Remember me? I talked with you at a conference on evangelism several months ago. But we still haven't found a minister. And two women from our church came to hear you preach last Sunday. They gave a glowing report. So sometime in the next few weeks, we'd like for you to come down and look over our situation. It seems like a good fit. We'd be willing to wait until June when your year's commitment is up. Will you come? Now, the author said, I had a lot of apprehension about this church. It sounded like a great church, but I was a country boy, and it was in the heart of the inner city. And yet, it also seemed God was opening a door in which he wanted me to walk through. I could sense God prodding me. I was almost surprised when I said the words, yes, I'll be happy to take a look. And the author talked about overcoming his fears and his anxieties and saying yes to become the minister of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky in 1966. And Bob Russell would see that church grow from 125 to over 12,500 people because he overcame his fear and said yes to God. <laughs> I love that story. I love that church. You can't go down 64 East without seeing that huge building and what God has done there. When we say yes to God and we allow God to move us forward in faith that overcomes our fears, great things can happen. But we always see these stories from this other side. And we often miss how scary it could be at the beginning. We exaggerate all the great things, but we underestimate how hard the challenge is in the beginning. So I want us to go to a Bible story that kind of illustrates the challenges that we face. It's part of a brand new sermon series called Faith Over Fear. And each of the next four weeks, we're going to look at different types of fears and anxieties we have and challenges we face and see how faith can help us to navigate those. Today, we're going to take a look at the very first of those, a story from the book of Joshua. If you have your phone or your Bible or you want to follow along on screen, listen to these words that Joshua records for us. After the death of Moses, verse 1 says, so let's start right there. When you hear that phrase, you should immediately think, a crisis 
A change of leadership is almost always cause for a crisis. Uh, we've seen that in our own country, that when, when leaders shift and change, that that can cause lots of instability and frustration. And Moses has just died. The people are apprehensive. They're nervous. Joshua continues. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, who was Moses' aide, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you. Well, this is another big step. Here's Joshua stepping into a brand new role, a brand new circumstance. If death caused the first crisis, then this is the second. Do we trust the new guy? What's it going to be like? Joshua continues and he presents another crisis that they're facing. You and all these people get ready, for I want you to cross the Jordan River into the land that I am about to give them, to the Israelites. Here's another crisis, and this is it. They've come, after 40 years of wandering, they've come to the edge of the promised land. And while they don't know everything that's in store for them, they recognize there are some big challenges in front of them. And the first one that he gives is enormous. While the Jordan River at oftentimes is no wider than this and just trickles through its banks, there are times in the year where it swells well beyond its banks into the fields and into the valleys that are nearby. In fact, there is a point in the, sea, in the spring at, on occasions where the Jordan would kind of look to us like the Mississippi, mighty and strong. And it just so happens in this story, that's what it looks like. When God says, hey, we're going to cross that river, the people look at it and they think, man, that's an enormous river. How are we going to get across that? What's that going to be like? Oh, it wouldn't be scary for trained soldiers who were ready to ford something like that. They would probably have the ability, but think about this crowd. There are lots of moms with new babies and children and and uh, they weren't a society, they were desert people. They didn't spend a lot of time crossing rivers. That wasn't their primary task. And so this was scary. It was unfamiliar. When God calls us to do something that's scary and unfamiliar, we, we face a crisis. Am I going to trust God to do this thing, or am I going to let my fear keep me from trying? There are at least three different kinds of crises that we face in life. One kind of crisis we face is called a situational crisis. It's when an accident has occurred or something unexpected has happened, an unexpected loss, and, and, and we, we aren't sure how we're going to move through that situation. Think the story of Job. In a single day, he learns he's lost his kids, he's lost his wealth, his livestock. He, he faces a crisis, a situation that he's never faced before, and it's overwhelming. An overwhelming kind of crisis. But there's a second kind of crisis that we face in life. It's, it's a much more natural kind. It's, it's not unexpected, but we often don't plan for it well. And that's what we call developmental crises. It's part of our natural human development, right? It's, it's the crisis that you face when you first leave home. Uh, you're a little nervous about life on your own and how that's going to go, and, 
And, and it's a kind of crisis you face. There's another one, right? You marry someone and you, you, you start a life together and yet you realize, hmm, this isn't everything I thought it would be. And so there's a kind of crisis you work through. There's a big crisis when, if God blesses you with children, and you have a child for the first time, and the baby's crying in the middle of the night, like, there's no instruction manual for these things. You know, this is crazy. How are we going to move through this? And so you, you find that, and you deal with that kind of a structure. That's a developmental kind of challenge. We can also expect some point in our life that there will be other challenges that we'll face that are normal, retirement, or the end, end of one career and the start of another. Those are what we call developmental crises that happen. And you could think of like Abraham and Sarah in the Bible and the different challenges that they naturally faced as they moved through life. Of course, there's a third kind of crisis that we often face, and that's the existential crisis, the existence crisis. It's when we have to face a disturbing truth. It's when you hear that you've got an incurable illness or the person that you promised to be with forever says, I want a divorce. Even though you're successful at your job and you do a good job, your boss comes in and says, listen, I'm sorry, we have to cut back. It's nothing you've done, but you no longer are employed here. These are moments where something threatens our existence. The way we do life is suddenly changed, and, and those existential crises can be severe. You could think of someone like Elijah in the Bible, Someone who had tried to do what God wanted, but Jezebel has, has put a, a death sentence on him and put out a, a, a warrant and a hit on his life, and he goes running, fleeing, says, I, I want to die, God. Just take me home. I don't want to be a part of all this anymore. His existence was threatened. There are other kinds of crises or crises that we face in life, but this text points to some things that can help us when we face a crisis, when we face things that scare us. And one of the most important ones is given right here in the third verse. And that is, we should, when we face a crisis, we should cling and hold tightly to God's promises. God always keeps his promises. Everything else around us may fail, but God never fails. Here's the, what what. God speaks through, Mo, or through Joshua. I will give you every place where you set your foot, just as I promised Moses. In fact, he goes on and he makes another promise. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And boy, here's a verse that you should write down and take to memory. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is a powerful word. The Hebrew writer rewrites that or restates that later on in the New Testament. That's what God says. I promise I'm not going to leave you in the crisis. Someone else might, but I won't. So be strong. Be courageous. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their ancestors. If the first thing we do in times of crisis is hold tight to God's promise, the second thing we do in a time of crisis is to find our strength and our courage. Did you hear what God said? Be strong. Be courageous. It's in you. Find it. 
I made you, I put it in there, now figure out where it's at. Draw on that strength that you have. And by the way, I think for those of us who are God followers, we have to remember that part of that strength isn't our own. It's a sense that God is with us. In fact, I'll say as much in just a moment. So be strong, be courageous. And a third thing that he calls them to do is to be careful to obey all the law that my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. In a time of crisis, it's important for us to continue to obey God. One of the things that we we need to understand about crises is sometimes, sometimes they have nothing to do with us, but a lot of the time, we create our own messes. We have a part to play in the, in the crisis that we face. And if we're really honest, a lot of times what leads us to a crisis is sin and disobedience. And so one of the things that we do when we face a crisis is we take a really hard look and then we ask this tough question. Am I obeying God in this? Now the answer might be, boy, big fail. If that's the case, what do we do? Well, the Bible says that if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And so we confess that to God if we're not where we need to be, and we say, okay, I'm going to obey God's word. I'm going to obey God's law. I'm not only going to obey it. A fourth thing he says is start to to rely on it, to recite it, to remember it, to hold it. Uh, Grab hold of my word in the time of a crisis. In fact, he goes on, he says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be very careful to do everything written in it. If you do what's written there, you'll be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? So be strong. Be courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. And here we have the callback to our Christmas message. Emmanuel, God with us wherever we go. Well, that's a great story. We like to hear uh, those things in the front end. That's God getting them motivated to do this scary thing that's in front of them. But when we face a difficult circumstance or we have a question of what is it that God wants me to do now, and that's what most crises bring us to, right? The question says, okay, I'm in a crisis, now what happens? So as we think about what is it we're going to do now, there are some things we should probably do before we take a next step. If we're facing the unfamiliar, if we feel maybe God's calling us in a direction, but it's a challenging thing to do, a place to begin is to do what Joshua did. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies out from the city of Shittim, and he told them, Look over the land, and he told them especially Jericho. We want to gather reliable information about where it is and what it is that God has in front of us. Now, here's what's fascinating about this story. Joshua sends them out to gather intel, but I don't think it's the kind of intel that you would expect. If I was sending someone out in front of us to spy out the land, I'd want to know, 
where are the fortifications and, and where are the enemy uh, troops right now? What, what, what's their location? What's their preparation and readiness for battle? Uh, what, what's it look like for us as we go in? Is there a certain route we should take? Is there a route we should avoid? Those are the strategic and, and tactical things I would want to know. But it seems, based on the report that they give, that they had a very different mission. Their mission seems to be to go ahead of them and see what is God doing there? What's the temperature of the circumstance? And does it look like God has made a path for us forward? What's the temperature? What's the circumstance? What's the will of those people we're about to go against? What's in front of us? Get reliable information. See where God is working. See where God is paving the way forward for us. And I say that we, we can know that that's what they did because of what comes at the end of chapter 2. In verse 24, the spies return to Joshua and they say this, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands because all of the people there are melting in fear because of us. They come back with a report about the feelings of the people, about their fears, about their anxieties. They're afraid of what God's about to do. Isn't that interesting that when God calls us to something, oftentimes we're not the only ones who are afraid, although we might feel that way. The enemies of God fear too, with good reason. Well, as they get ready to do this thing, Joshua chapter 3 tells us the big conclusion to this exciting story. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim, and they went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving this order to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. And if you follow this, then you will know which way to go. Let me say this, God's way is always the right way to go. Let me make sure that's really, really clear for us. What God wants is always what's best. It's always the right way. It's always the right plan. And when we're facing a tough circumstance and a challenging step of faith, and we're afraid, one of the things we want to do is consider carefully what is God's plan that he may be unfolding. And then make this resolution. If I see that God is moving, I will follow God. If I see that God is moving, I'm going to follow God wherever he leads. That's a big decision. That's a big step. Now, most of us said that at one point, right? When we came to faith, and we said those words, I accept him as my Lord and as my Savior. We were really saying, where he leads me, I'll follow him. But then, you know, life comes along, and sometimes God leads us to the unfamiliar, the unexpected, and we know we haven't always been faithful to follow. Well, it was important for them. God was leading them to a place they'd never been before. Man, it was a place that held great promise for them, great potential for them. It was a blessing that was in front of them. 
And God knew that their eyes were so prone to only seeing the challenge that they would miss all the other things he had for them. And friends, let me tell you, they saw the challenge. First, that mighty stream or river. But that wasn't the biggest challenge in front of them. They could, from where they were on the fields and plains on one side of that river, they could see ahead to the gigantic fortified city of Jericho, perhaps the most fortified city in the world at that time. And they would think, God's sending us there? Like, one problem is bad enough, but what are we going to do when we get there? And, and, and after that, this whole land is massive. I mean, they'd heard reports that there might be giants in that land. Uh, what are we going to do next? It's easy for us to become overwhelmed. But God's plan doesn't have us uh, thinking constantly about the next challenge and the next challenge. In fact, Jesus speaks to this. He says, hey, don't worry about tomorrow. <laughs> Tomorrow's going to have enough challenges of its own. Just, just worry about today's challenge. Let me get you through this one, and then we'll talk about what we're going to do next. And that's a good thing for us to remember when we face a crisis. Oftentimes, we let the enormity of the circumstance overwhelm us. But God breaks it down into little steps. He says, just trust me in this thing. Just trust me today. Just trust me today. Well, Joshua told the people, verse 5, Consecrate yourselves, or that is to pray and get right with God, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. If you face a challenge, let me encourage you to do this. Take God at his word. God forgives, God loves, and God is with us through our trials and difficulties. God told them, Joshua told them, God's going to do amazing things among you. But friends, God didn't stop doing amazing things in the days of Joshua. He's still living and active. He still does amazing things today. And he wants to do amazing things among us, among you. Well, there's one last thing you should do before you take a major step of faith. And that is to look and see if God might be providing some mentors, some partners to help you on the journey. Not only is God with us, but he oftentimes puts someone else with us. Remember, Aaron comes along to help Moses. He often puts someone else on our team to help us with the challenges in front of us. Listen to what happens in the story. Joshua tells those priests, those leaders that God has chosen, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and they went ahead. Then the Lord continued to speak to Joshua. Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of Israel so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Talk about a step of faith. The water is muddy. They cannot see where the banks, the natural banks, where you're going to fall down into the water would be. When the priests take a step into this water, into this, they don't know what to expect. They probably expect they're going to sink in the mud because the ark is heavy. It's being carried by at least four people. 
And so this is a challenge that's in front of them. Well, God continues in verse 13, as soon as the priests who carried the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth set foot in the Jordan, its water flowing downstream is going to be cut off and it will stand up in a heap. Now I know if, if you're here today and you're a critic or a skeptic or a cynic, you're thinking to yourself, well, I wonder how this story ends. How's this gonna work out for somebody? So let's see. Verse 14 tells us what happens. It says, when the people broke camp across the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of Covenant went ahead of them. The Jordan was at flood stage, all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water upstream stopped flowing. It began to pile up at a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. And while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So you picture the scene, no more water is coming in and all the water that's there is just draining away to the south. And as that's happening, the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord walked further and they stopped in the middle of the Jordan and I love this verse, and they stood on dry ground while all of Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. God provided. Their hope was rewarded. And the picture is an incredible one. Although they always kept a healthy distance of several thousand feet from the ark, it, it was meant to symbolize the presence of God, and they gave it awe and respect. As they crossed this river, the Jordan, the ark is in the middle and they all have to pass by it. And they all have to be reminded that it's God's power that made this possible. And that's what we need to remember when he helps us through a crisis. All humanity has been prone to think once they've gotten through a crisis, look at me, I did it. <laughs> In reality, we say, look at us. God and me, we we did this together. God got them through. God got them across. Their hope was rewarded. When faith is required, hope is often born. We hope for something incredible to happen. And when faith overcomes fear, we often find that our hope is not only restored, but it's rewarded with a blessing from God. I like something that was written by Max Licato. Max writes this with regard to hope and challenges we face. Max writes, our problem is not so much that God doesn't give us what we hope for as it is that we don't know the right thing for which to hope. You see, hope is not what you expect. It is what you would never dream. Hope is a wild, improbable tale with a pinch-me-I'm-dreaming ending. Hope is Abraham adjusting his bifocals so he can see not his grandson, but his son. It's Moses standing in the promised land, not with Aram or Miriam at his side, but with Elijah and the transfigured Christ. 
It's the old man, Zechariah, left speechless at the sight of his wife, Elizabeth, gray-headed and pregnant. It's the two Emmaus-bound pilgrims reaching out to take a piece of bread from a stranger only to see the nail-pierced hands when he offers it to them. You see, hope is not a granted wish or a favor performed. (laughs) Hope is far greater than that. It's a zany, unpredictable dependence on a God who loves to surprise us right out of our socks. And he loves to be there in the flesh to see our reaction. God has plans for you, for me, for us. I don't know all that's in front of us. Certainly we can see challenges that are like that Jordan River was. They seem big. And we could look to the future and maybe see some kinds of Jerichos out there. They certainly exist. But God exists too. And God is bigger than the Jordan. He's bigger than Jericho. He's bigger than whatever obstacle or challenge or crisis that you face. And yet we all have the same challenge. Will I step out in faith to do what God is calling me to do? Or will I stay back on the other side of the Jordan? Will I miss the promise for fear of taking the next step? I call you today to let faith overcome your fear. Now, if you're here and you've never yet accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you, let this be the day that you step out, that you say yes to Jesus. And if you are a Christian and a God follower, then I encourage you to look and to ask the question of God, God, what are you leading me to now? And as God reveals that to you, I encourage you to be willing to say yes to God. Whatever decision is on your heart, would you make it right now as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation? Take my life and let it be. God's name.